Corey Christen from Indians Baseball Insider joins me today. Not only that, but we have a sub-in co-host. Dave couldn't make this one, so I grabbed my buddy Gabe Faulkner from Soxphere to talk everything Indians. If you're new to the show, basically what we do during the offseason is we take every single position of this current franchise that we're doing and break them down for the future, for the present, off-season overview moves, everything that you can possibly think of when it comes to a team, we do it. Top prospects, superstars, you name it, we got it. Here's Corey Christen from Baby Indians Baseball Insider. Let's go. Welcome to Painting Corners, your weekly podcast for all things baseball. Now, here are your hosts, Austin Hartsfield and Dave Kwiatkowski. All right, Corey, so we're going to go around the horn a little bit here. We're going to talk about every single position on this Cleveland Indians roster. This is the same team that went 91-71 and 71 last year, won the Central pretty easily. Nothing should really change in that respect, considering the division. But, you know, you make a couple of moves over the past two years. You trade the number one catching prospect in baseball and Francisco Mejia to grab Brad Hand, who has a phenomenal contract, by the way. And you trade Jan Gomes to the Nats last season. Or this offseason, I guess. Uh, what does the catching position look like right now for the Cleveland Indians? Yeah, the catching position is weird because I've thought for the past year and a half that this was going to be Eric Haas's job eventually, uh, given Shane Bieber and Adam Plutko, who are vying for that fifth spot in rotation, both grew up in the same uh, wavelength, I guess, with Haas throughout the minor leagues. But as Jan Gomes goes out, Roberto Perez has been the mainstay there for the past few years as Gomes is back up in the supplement and the 30% player, if you will, when Gomes doesn't play that 30% of the time. But the Indians threw a wrench into my thinking by uh, trading for Kevin Ploiecki from the Mets a couple of weeks ago. And right now the depth chart sits at Perez as the starter, then Ploiecki, and then Eric Haas is kind of the odd man out. And, you know, I, I think that it's a position that, is realistically going to be Perez and Haas. I feel like it should be. Ploiecki mixes in a little bit, but, you know, it's just confusing to me right now because I know Gomes had a decent-sized contract that they wanted to move. The whole point of the Indians offseason was not only to try to get better, which that's up in the air right now given we don't know what they're going to do in the postseason should they get there but also to get a little bit younger. And I feel like getting rid of Jan Gomes helps the Indians do that a little bit. It didn't clear too much money off the books, although it did clear some. So the catching position is kind of a jury-out scenario, but Roberto Perez has been excellent as a pitch framer, excellent as defensive stopper. His bat needs to come around a bit, and I think that's where Eric Haas can pick him up a little bit. Ploiecki, although he doesn't, you know, the stats don't, pop out at you on the score sheet he's a pretty solid hitter and a pretty solid defender so I'm curious to see how Terry Francona manages that manages that throughout the season yeah when it comes down to it I mean Tito's the best seems to be definitely one of the best Gabe and I are both Red Sox fans so we saw Tito forever you know basically playing games with other managers and playing games with the lineup and you know connecting pitchers but you know it 
there's really no solution to this point. There's two spots in, in baseball that Dave and I usually say that you can sacrifice offense at, and that's center field and catcher. And I have no problem with the guy being that good as of a pitch framer starting for my team. I'd even say three shortstop center field and catcher. It depends on what you can get at the shortstop position. Of course, the Indians have a really good one right now. So um, the thing about if you if you're looking for a catcher that can hit, I would go for Haas. If you're looking for a more pure defender, then I'd be more inclined to take Perez and start him. So it's going to be Perez as the starter. It's just a matter of who wins that second catcher's position, if it's Ploiecki or if it's Hawes. And right now, I think Ploiecki would be above Hawes. But I think Hawes is somewhat ready, um, given, like I said, the history with Clevenger and Bieber. There's some history with Taylor and Olsen, uh, guys that have worked in AAA while Hawes was there. People forget this. Last year, Shane Bieber and Adam Plutko both threw no-hitters in AAA. Bieber's was a seven-inning range-short no-hitter, and Plutko's was a nine-inning, almost a perfect game. He was, I believe, two outs away from a perfect game. And uh, Eric Haas caught both of them. So he has game manageability. He has power in his bat. He can hit 20 home runs. He has done so in the minors in a season. Uh, I think he's did it, done it twice now in the last two seasons. So I think he's a solid prospect. I think he's a solid catcher. It's just a matter of how Francona, like I said, wants to use those three. Kind of talk to me about Bo Naylor. I know he's just the first-round draft pick last year. Is he far, far into the future while Haas and Perez have this job now, or is it uh, kind of a three- or four-year window instead of maybe five, six? Uh, it, it just kind of depends on how Eric Haas shakes out, honestly. Um, Naylor came out of high school last year. He's only 19, so he's got time to grow. He played in the Arizona League all, all year last year. Had a pretty good year, hit 274 uh, with a couple of home runs. But I feel like if they, uh, the Indians have a history of taking their time with their good prospects. They did it with Bradley Zimmer. They did it with Francisco Lindor. If Bo Naylor is what we all think he is, and that is a guy that can hit, a guy that has a good arm, a guy that's overall a solid catching prospect, and he has an ability to play the catching position as a defender, then I think he's going to be a guy that they take their time with. I would say the ETA is somewhere in that four-year range, but if it's three years, I wouldn't be surprised. First base, we get the return of Carlos Santana. I mean, the guy went on a journey since signing with Philly. I mean, he got traded to Seattle, wasn't in Seattle very long, and now he's back with the Indians. You know, he makes $40 million over the next two years. I'm not really sure how much other teams are paying for that one. What can we expect out of Carlos Santana this year? Well, pretty much what we're used to seeing from Carlos Santana. I don't want to say and write off what he did in Philadelphia last year, which was kind of a down year in comparison to what we saw in Cleveland in 2016 and 2017. Um, But I do think that being back in Cleveland is going to be a little bit better for Carlos Santana. The thing about the Indians with getting Carlos Santana, essentially swapping Edwin Acrosion out for him, is they're going to save money. This is a move to save money. What the Indians do is they sacrifice a little bit of power to bring a more well-rounded hitter, a well-rounded bat, a well-rounded eye at the plate like Carlos Santana. And speaking from Northeast Ohio, Northeast Ohio, Cleveland, the whole community, they love him. Carlos Santana is a loved guy in Northeast Ohio. He'll have some ability to play outfield. Maybe he logs a game or two a week out there and you swap Jake Bowers in from, I would assume, left field. Uh, left field or right field to play first base 
to mix in with Carlos Santana. Um, you could look at that. You could look at that in a vacuum. You could look at Santana as a DH. Um, I, I think what they're doing though is making an effort to get younger, and they do that by bringing Santana back at a glance and at, on the surface. The contract looks pricey, but for, considering they still save money by giving up Edwin Encarnacion, and considering that they're making that effort to get younger, I I like I like the move when it happened. The thing I didn't like was giving Yandy Diaz up, but that's kind of a separate deal. But um, oh, I love having Santana back. I think he'll fit nicely back at first base. He's a better defender than Edwin Encarnacion was, certainly. Um, and he could give you some relief in the outfield if they need it, which right now the Indians kind of need it. You just mentioned Jake Bowers, who you got from Tampa Bay. This is definitely a guy, being a fan of a team in the AL East, that I thought would be in the Rays' future at, at the at minimum. you know. And he absolutely just got dealt when it came down to it. In this Carlos Santana deal, he was part of, you know, a side part of it, but still. What's the what does it look like for Jake Bowers this year? Is he going to get more time in the outfield or more time at first base, which would be hard since Santana's out there? Well, it just kind of depends on where Santana plays. I think if Santana DHs, I'd see Bowers playing at first base, and if Santana's playing first base, Bowers will likely DH will play in the outfield. See, the thing about Jake Bowers, and I think it's more of it, the Indians kind of made this a three-team deal, but essentially what they did was they traded Encarnacion for Santana. And then they traded Yandy Diaz for Jake Bowers. Essentially what Diaz for Bowers is, is a position swap. If you look at Bowers' progression through the minor league, he's only been in the race system since 2013, or rather in the minor league since 2013. Um, So considering that's a six-year progression, he's only 23 years old. Um, He came out of high school. He's progressed fairly fast throughout the minor league system. He's a pretty good bat-on-the-ball guy. He certainly draws a quite a bit of walks. He'll strike out a bit, but I'm not too overly concerned with that. It's about a two-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio, which I can live with. So I think the Indians giving up Yandy Diaz to get Jake Bowers was to help fill that position in the outfield. And uh, sidebar, I think the Rays got a great player in Yandy Diaz who really just had problems with launch angling, getting the ball up in the air. You see pictures of him. He has biceps on biceps. He's a strong-looking dude. And uh, I think the Rays and Kevin Cash have the tools to make Yandy Diaz into a great hitter. But with Bowers, I think it was a position swap. It was part of that effort to get a little younger. And look, you had this guy for a while now. He's only 23, like I said. He's going to be in this organization for quite some time. Next, we have you know second base. Uh, Jason Kipnis struggled last year. If we're looking in the system, who is the future second baseman for the Indians? Ooh, that's a great that's a great question. That's almost a loaded question because I think what one of the strengths of the Indians farm system is there's depth in that middle infield. Um, I'm thinking imme- immediately when you ask that question, who the future is? Um, it depends on what happens first of all with Jose Ramirez. Um, and whether they keep him at third base long-term or if they let Kipnis' contract go out and they move Ramirez to second base, that's an option. There's options that are coming up throughout the minor leagues. I'm a big fan, fan being a relative term. I I really like Ernie Clement and his game. Fourth-round pick a few years ago out of Virginia. That kid just hits the ball. He makes contact. He's a pretty solid defender at second base and shortstop. He can play a little bit. Um, he hits around 300. He gets on base. He doesn't strike out a ton. I really like Ernie Clement's game. There's guys like Mark Mathias who struggled a bit, had some injury issues that are come up, coming up through the minor league system. But if you're looking at 
what the Indians could do with Kipnis out and assuming things work out the way we hope they do, we being um, baseball people that really have an interest in Cleveland, um, we work. We hope that Francisco Lindor can work it out with the Indians and he can stay there. So if that works out, Jose Ramirez statistically is better at second base than he is at third base, and not just defensively, but at the plate as well. His hit, his batting numbers, his numbers are improving as he's a second baseman compared to a third baseman. So kind of if the Indians don't want to extend Kipnis, which given the past couple of seasons, I really wouldn't blame them. Uh, really, since 2016, his production's just just dropped. And he has some injury concerns, but he's at two, he hit 275 in 2016, and he hasn't hit over 232 the last couple seasons. So really it kind of depends on what they want to do with Kipnis. They certainly have some depth coming up in the minor league system. But I think Jose Ramirez could slide over to second base and they could find some options that could play third base, be it a minor leaguer, or they go out and get somebody um, in free agency. There's just such an influx of talent at the at the middle infield positions on this team, at least. There's a ton of shortstop prospects in the top 30. Which one of those shortstop prospects do you think is going to pan out the best, or even the entire infield if you want to go there? You know, if we're just talking about prospects, and I'm, I might be a little impartial to this, I really like Tyler Freeman's game. Tyler Freeman spent all of last season in short season Mahoney Valley, which is right down the down the road for me. So I got to see him uh, quite a bit last season. Tyler Freeman can hit the baseball. I mean, last year he led the New York Penn League with a 352 average, 72 games. So that's nothing to really cry about. Um, he doesn't strike out a lot. He doesn't draw a lot of walks, but I mean – the kid has wheels. He has good base running ability. He can put the ball, bat on the ball. He's not a flashy defender like Francisco Lindor does, but he has a lot of room to grow in the middle infield. Second base could be his future, but if the Indians want to develop as, develop him as a shortstop, I really feel like they could. This kid has a great eye at the plate. He can see the ball. He can hit the ball. He can hit the ball to all fields. He has gap power. Uh, he had 29 doubles last season. 95 hits in 72 games. That's some context right there. So um, we'll see what happens with the second year with him. Another guy was Richie Palacios, who they drafted last year out of Towson in the third round. Um, He had some injury problems later on in the season, but he was batting around 400, I believe, in the short season level before he got promoted to the full season A level. He's another guy that's pure contact. So those two guys in the lower levels are guys to watch. And then I mentioned Ernie Clement as well, if they want to bring him up as a shortstop. All right, so uh, the next guy we have, um, Jose Ramirez. I've always been a huge fan of Ramirez. Um, you know, he's just he's just so good, and um, you can't ask for a better third baseman. Um, especially these past you know few years, he's been – he's been a monster he's thrown up monster numbers uh last three years he has a 300 average 375 um obp i mean it's he's just been tremendous for the um indians so my two questions for you is uh are um what can he do to get better in 2019 and did the indians always expect him to be you know a star for them or um you know did they have some other plans for his future uh when he was in the minors that's a good thought because I'm thinking about when he was in the minor leagues. He and Francisco Lindor grew together in uh, the Indian system all the way up until he debuted, Ramirez did, in 2013. Um, 
honestly, they kind of floated Ramirez around in the minor leagues. They floated him at second base, third base, played some outfield. So they tried him in a lot of different places. The MO of the Indians front office, they like to find guys that are prospects, and they like to try to slot them into different positions. Like Yandy Diaz, for example, who they tried him at third base, they tried him at first base, they tried him at corner outfield, and realistically just couldn't find a spot for him. Jose Ramirez really didn't take off until he started playing full base third time, uh, third base full time. Um, he hit 219 in 2015 and then exploded in 2016, hit 312 and hasn't looked back since. Now his numbers might be a little deflated last year, hitting 270 for the season. That's because he had a massive slump uh, going into, I believe it was August, like right after July, past the All Star break. He had a massive slump. And then his numbers just dipped drastically. Still finished third in the MVP race the past two seasons. Silver Slugger, All-Star. I mean, this guy's bona fide. And as much talk that's getting floated around about the Indians to keep Francisco Lindor here long-term, that's a guy I'd be focused on just as much, if not more, as Jose Ramirez. He's really been the glue that has kept everything together for the Indians. He's in his sixth major league season, which I think it's lost on the shuffle a little bit. He's 26 years old now debut when he was 20 so he's got the experience he has a lot of playing time under his belt and I mean he's a guy that just does everything well right now he defends well certainly hits for contact well has power in his bat um 39 home runs last season he had 29 the year before he so he's gotten just better over the years I don't know what more he needs to do um he certainly draws a lot of walks he doesn't strike out or he, he draws walks more than he does strike out his OPS plus is off the charts. His way to runs is off the charts. His war is off the charts. I mean, like I said, I, I truly believe, and this is kind of removing my childhood fandom aside and looking at it just from a journalistic and from an analytic side, I truly think Jose Ramirez is a top three player in Major League Baseball, and he should get credit for that. There's no better left side of the infield in baseball. When they're, when they're playing over there. And, and when it comes to Jose playing at second base, there's no better middle infield as well, which which shows how important Francisco Lindor is to all, to all of this, really. If they're on the left side of the infield, I'm taking them over Correa and Bregman. I'm taking them over Story Arenado. You could go down the list. There is not a—I mean, these guys are two top 10 MVP candidates every single year. Francisco Lindor— He's 25 years old. He's also injured right now. We're going to get to that in a second. We got to talk about Frankie, though. I mean, three top 10 MVP finishes in the last three years. 2018, he had 38 home runs with that frame. That's almost as preposterous as Jose Ramirez stealing the amount of bags that he did at his awkward size. He's he's just so good. You know, you talked about Tyler Freeman. What are the Indians going to wind up having to do with all these infield prospects, considering that it's pretty much set outside of second base? play him or trade him or try him at third base. Oh, you know, whatever, wherever Jose Ramirez plays, there's going to leave a hole for the other spot. If Jose plays at third, they'll leave a hole for second. If he plays at second, leaves a hole for third. So all those middle infield prospects that we mentioned a couple minutes ago, Freeman, Clement, uh, Palacios, there's plenty more. Matthias, Tyler Krieger, there are guys that can certainly slot in. Um, and there's third base guys, bonafide third base guys too, like Nolan Jones, which, shoot, if Nolan Jones progresses the way that he, that he has been, He'll start in double A, so he could be in Cleveland as soon as next year. And I'm thinking just kind of ahead, when you ask about Jason Kipnis, you move Jose Ramirez to second, you put Nolan Jones at third base, and you have power-hitting prospect Bobby Bradley coming up to play first base, that's a middle infield that's set for five, seven, ten years. So um, when you look at Francisco Lindor and you look at guys that could play shortstop, not just with him out right now, but you know, assuming contract stuff happens and – Knock on wood, God forbid that 
he's not in Cleveland. The, you know, those are guys that are invaluable now to the Indian system. Yeah, I mean, this is almost a 16 war between two players when it comes to Ramirez and Lindor. When it comes to Francisco Lindor, I mean, he is one of the best characters in all of baseball. What does he actually mean to this organization? And is he kind of like, you know, the centerpiece to this entire team? Yeah, I mean, he's the glue that holds it all together. He is not just loved in Cleveland, but he's, in my opinion, if not the most, he's one of the most marketable players in baseball. Absolutely. And with Rob Manfred made comments about Mike Trout not being marketable or whatever the the context was. Point is, it was a dumb take that Manfred had. But Francisco Lindor is one of those guys that you can market. You know, look at the Puerto Rico game last year. One of the best moments of the entire Major League Baseball season postseason, regular season, spring training, whatever it was, was the home run that Francisco Lindor hit in Puerto Rico when the Indians played the Twins. Um, that just set an entire nation off. It set the entire thing off. It made every second of planning, every second of expenses, every second of travel, every second of headache that the Major League Baseball brass, the front, front office people within the Cleveland Indians and the Minnesota Twins – it made all the headaches and all that trouble to get them to Puerto Rico worth it. Whatever that cost them, it was worth it because of one swing of the bat. Francisco Lindor is the kind of guy that, you know, he's a guy that can make any Major League Baseball team better if you plug him into that lineup. He's a guy that's going to hit close to 300. He's going to get home runs. He's going to hit home runs, which, yeah, the home run power, when it first started to happen, was kind of surprising. Um he hit 15 in 2016. That was thought to be like the roundabout. Then all of a sudden, uh, he comes up and hits 33 in 2017. It's like, whoa, that's a massive spike. And then he doubles down and hits 38 last year. So I'm not saying he's going to hit 40 this year, but what is that an expectation now? Is it a 30 home run, 90 RBI season with 25 stolen bases and a 350 on base? Is that if that's a realistic expectation for Francisco Lindor? This is a if there were preseason MVP awards, he might win preseason MVP of the American League. We were we were actually just going through kind of preparing for our you know basically season preview award show. Basically, like who do we think is going to win the award? There's absolutely no reason that Francisco Lindor should be left left out of anybody's conversation. And the only thing that I can think of is he going to start opening day with this calf with this calf strain, or is it, or is he going to be ready? And if so, who is going to play shortstop on opening day? It's possible that he's ready to play opening day, but I don't have intensive knowledge of this scenario. Just kind of based on who I've talked to and what I've read, um, I think he's not going to play opening day, and I think it would be best for him not to given quite a few things. Number one, they're in Minnesota, and it's going to be cold in Minnesota, and it's going to be a pain in the butt to travel to Minnesota, play three games on a bad calf, and then get back in a plane and travel elsewhere. I don't think he should play opening day or maybe even that first week or, heck, even first month. I'm not sure how long he's going to need. I don't think this is a thing the Indians are going to rush with him coming back. Um, Of course, you would like to see him in that lineup and. You know, I think that, like I said, the glue that holds the lineup together, but not just that, it's that there's really not a solid replacement that you can have a lot of confidence in and saying, okay, Lindor's out, but this guy's got it. 
because there are a few candidates and there are a few questions with who's going to play shortstop if Francisco Lindor isn't ready to go for opening day. I was going to say the same thing about you know it being cold as all get out in Minnesota opening day. There's a chance probably, there's a strong chance that uh, it'll be snowing in Minnesota on opening day. So I'm with you. I don't I don't think that playing in Minnesota to start the season for uh, Lindor is the smartest thing to do. I would I'm of the opinion to wait until you know g- give him some time to get back. But yeah, you uh, you nailed it right on the head. I just think it's a smart thing to do. Um, I wouldn't pressure him to get out there to Minnesota, um, especially you know you're there a weekend series. You'll have a getaway on a Sunday, and you'll come back and you'll play home Monday. It's White Sox and Blue Jays at home. There's a big homestand. Maybe then if they think he's ready to go that early, um, you know, in April they have division games, of course. They got the White Sox, they got the Tigers, um, and they got the Royals. So you're playing against that you're playing against the whole division basically within the first three weeks of the season. So if they feel like they need to get Lindor out there, they're going to. If not, the next opponents after they play the Royals in mid-April, uh, are the Mariners, the Braves, the Marlins, the Astros, and then they go back down to Miami to close April. So other than, realistically, depending on how the Mariners start, but the Braves and the Astros were two playoff teams last year. Um, those, are the, those are the two teams that the Indians would face that made the postseason last year and the whole month. So with a, week, a bit of a weaker schedule, in April, I don't think the Indians would be as poised to bring them back compared to if they had a tougher schedule or if they had um, the Twins again maybe in April or if they had like the Red Sox or Yankees. They have the Astros. I think that's curious. The curious date is April 25th, which is a Thursday that's following a a two-game home series with the Marlins. Um, So they got the Marlins Tuesday, Wednesday, 23rd and 24th, and then they're at Houston for four right after that over a four-game weekend series so if there's anything maybe they'll get them ready for that houston series if not personally i would just hold them out until april and or the end of april rather and see what happens and then you know it depends on how his rehab goes also you know you just talked about the schedule let's go ahead and talk about the division and touch on the division a little bit is there a team that you kind of look at in this division and think okay they could probably threaten the throne this year when it comes to the al central if there's anything, it's the Twins. Um, I think the White Sox are a little bit away from their prospects being ready and their prospects being in full go. Um, I would say the Tigers are in full rebuild. The Royals are in full rebuild. That leaves Minnesota, if there's anything. And I really like what Minnesota has done this offseason. Just added Marwin Gonzalez not too long ago. They got Jonathan Scope. They brought in Nelson Cruz. So they added some bats. Max Kepler traditionally kills the Indians. I don't understand why, but he kills the Indians. I trust Byron Buxton out in <laughs> I, yeah. I trust Byron Buxton in center field. I like Polanco at shortstop as a defender. I don't. I really like what the Twins did this offseason. They got better certainly. Um, I think Zips and Fangraphs have have them around five hundred. So if they live up to that and then some, that can contend the Indians a little bit. But realistically, if there's a team in the Central, it's got to be the Twins. Shout out to uh, Painting Corners alumni Dan Samborski for the Zip system. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's amazing. Uh, we're headed to the outfield. You know, this is this is where it gets a little bit interesting 
because it's it's hands down like you and I and Gabe discussed before the worst part about this team when it comes down to it you know you had Leonis Martin have that scary infection last year is there what is the what is the opening day outfield you think is it going to look like could a prospect like Oscar Mercado slip into the rotation possibly when it comes to the outfield well, here's the way I see it. If you're asking for a opening day left field, center field, outfield, I feel like it's Greg Allen in left, Leos Martin in center, and Tyler Naquin in right. And I'm not really comfortable with it. I, I don't think it's a top-tier outfield by any stretch. I'm certainly not like a Red Sox outfield or a Yankee outfield. Um They have guys like Kipnis and Bowers and Santana that can float around out there. They got Jordan Luplo from the Pirates, so he's on the depth chart looking on as maybe the fourth outfielder in all this. It really is an enigma because when you think about it, Naquin and Allen were part-timers, and Martin, I'll be blunt, almost died. (laughs) I I mean, just being blunt. That was crazy. Like, Yeah, I I, I, I mean, it's awful. It's awful that it happens. But he almost died, and now yeah, he's going to be literally. a starting center fielder on opening day. Yeah, it's. Did you? I just read um, the athletic. I forget which Cleveland athletic um, writer wrote the article today about him, but like that was just crazy. Like one minute he's you know pinch hitting. Um, I think he like pinched hit the like day before he got sick, and then like. Within 24 hours, he's in the hospital, you know, fighting for his life. And, um, you know, whoever, whichever athletic writer or um, journalist wrote this said, like, the team had no idea what was going on. All they knew was, uh, you know, Martin was fighting for his life. And there was a chance that, you know, he could die from what he was fighting uh, with. And that's just crazy that he's going to be um, the starting center, like, starting center fielder on opening day. You know, after battling through all of that, that's just, you know, mind-blowing to me. Yeah, Zach Meisel, who covers the Indians for The Athletic. Big, big fan that. of him. Yeah, he's good. Um, yeah, he wrote that. I, you know, you asked about Mercado, too. I don't think he starts in Cleveland, but one thing that's really interesting about him is that when you look at Naquin and Martin and Luplo and Allen, Mercado's the only right-handed bat out of all those guys. Um, which I find very interesting. Now, he was he came in last year from the Cardinals organization, and just because he got washed out of the Cardinals organization doesn't mean he's bad. They have a very good farm system and always have. Um, he can he can hit for average. He can steal some bases. He plays a decent center field. So if he does make a move, I would probably pit him at center field, move Martin to left, and play Greg Allen in right, or vice versa with Martin in right and Allen in left. But I, I was clamoring all offseason, basically dating back to the trade or the uh, winter meetings, rather, for them to sign an outfielder. I don't care if it was Bryce Harper or, or Adam Jones or McCutcheon or your aunt down the street, whoever it was that could have made this outfield better. And I think there were names that are out there and maybe still are names that could make this outfield better. And the Indians just didn't make the move for him. You know, I'm, I, I'm not saying they should have went and got Bryce Harper, but man, spending and getting Bryce Harper and having a middle, middle of the lineup of Lindor Ramirez and Harper would look really damn good in this American league 
when you got Boston and Houston in New York that, in my opinion, are just a tier ahead of you. Um, you, you. That was evidence last year in the postseason, and even two years ago when the Yankees beat the Indians in the ALDS. You know, the Indians are the fourth best team in the American League. I wouldn't put them in the conversation for them to be the third best team in the American League right now. I think they are at Pat, the fourth best team in the American League. And that's quite honestly because they didn't do much to address glaring, boldface type highlighter strike needs that are in the outfield. Um, and maybe some of the bullpen too, but that's a different story. Um, you know, Naquin, serviceable. Allen, I, I've always loved Greg Allen, even as a prospect with him coming up the Indian system. Plays a good outfield, got good speed, just sometimes struggles at the batter's box. Leos Martin, like we said, he had the in, he had the uh, infection last year, and you know, good story for him to come back. But how's he really going to do? Bradley Zimmer on the DL. I, I mean, there's just too many questions with this outfield right now for a team that is and should be contending for a World Series. I'm glad you said Bradley's name because I was just about to ask you if the Bradley Zimmer dream is dead. I don't know if the dream is dead, but are we going to see the same Bradley Zimmer that we saw coming up through the minors in double A and triple A? Are we going to see that gazelle center fielder making those diving catches again? What are we going to see from Bradley Zimmer when he comes back? And look, because the outfield, in my opinion, is so shallow, and I don't think there's much depth there at all, Zimmer's going to play when he comes back, right when he comes back. You'll have Zimmer, Martin, and then you'll probably rotate Naquin, Allen, Luplo, Bowers, Kipnis, Santana, you have guys to rotate for that third spot. But yeah, I mean, when Zimmer's healthy, he needs to be playing. So, Corey, I do want to mention this before I forget. Um, I don't know if you read the uh, baseball prospect- prospectus, uh, like annual pro- projections uh, book or whatever, um, but I was reading an article today on uh, SB Nation, the Let's Go Tribe, I think that's the name of the mm-hmm. uh, Indians, um, SB Nation, but uh, the the writer was highlighting what um, Bobby Bradley was projected to, you know, his projections for this season, and uh, they they projected his um, slash line to be 223, 285, 425 uh, if he was in the majors, and then they do the comparables, uh, compare comparables for the you know who who um, could he project out to be, and uh, the two comparables that they compared him to were Paul Goldschmidt and Jerry Sands, which, like, I, I just don't... I guess it's super hard to project how a player pans out, but that was just, like... I, I didn't understand that uh, at first, and I don't think the the writer for the SB Nation did either. I was just uh, wondering if you saw that as well. I didn't see it, but it doesn't make much sense yeah, hearing it. No sense whatsoever. Um... I don't know how much Bradley's going to play. I mean, he's the next guy in line for that first base job. And he's the prospect they've been waiting on and the prospect they've been breeding to be the future first baseman of the Indians. So if there's injuries, you know, if there's something that happens to Santana or Bowers, Bradley's probably the first man up with all that. That's why there are projections for him. Still very young. He's only 22. Third round pick has gone through the gambit in the minor leagues. He's got home run power. He's done better with making contact. He's done better with striking out a little bit less. Um, he's done better with drawing some walks. It, it, you know, when I think of a guy like Bobby Bradley, I see pure home run potential. I see 
30 home run power. He hit 27 last year, 23 the year before, uh, 29 two years ago. He's got a he's got a raw powerful stick and a raw powerful swing. So at 22, he still has room to grow. Um, Paul Goldschmidt, I don't know. I don't know about defensively if I would compare him to that, but you leave Jerry Sands alone. Come on. Yeah. Leave, uh, leave Jerry Sands alone. All right. So, uh, so next position we have up starting pitching. Um, yeah. Austin, Austin and I were discussing this before. Um, you might the be show. the best rotation in baseball. Uh, top to you know, the Indians have quite the rotation. Um, but I, I honestly, would I love them in that category. Uh, you know, Kluber, Bauer, you know, I mean, Bieber just like the, the list goes on and on, but I'm shocked that, uh, Bauer or Kluber or anybody that wasn't dealt this all season. What about you? I'm not really shocked by it because if they would have given up one of those starters, what would they have realistically gotten back? Would it be a, like in the Dodgers, for example, there were rumors that Alex Verdugo would have been the main piece. And while he's a nice piece for the future and a really nice bat to build on, that's not really what the Indians need right now. The problem with trading Bauer or Kluber is no team that had interest in them really had anything for the Indians to use right now in a significant scenario. Quite honestly, the guy the Indians need hasn't been signed yet. His name is Bryce Aaron Max Harper. That's the guy the Indians need. There's no Alex Verdugo that it can compare to Bryce Harper. And that's what the Indians needed to do, and they didn't. That's just my personal little angrily, hastily given opinion. But when I think of why they didn't trade them, I understand it. Because, yeah, it does keep one of the best starting rotations in baseball intact at least one through four, probably the best. One through three, certainly the best. So Kluber's going to be another Scion candidate. Bauer, if he's healthy, can be a Scion candidate. Carrasco is a two or a three, and he's probably a one somewhere else. Clevenger, I really like Clevenger and the strides that he's Me made. Too. Me too. Um, a, a bona fide strike thrower isn't afraid to go at you. And Shane Bieber, he just doesn't miss gloves. Uh, I mean, he, he, hardly, he hardly throws walks. If you look at his minor league numbers, his strikeout to walk stuff is insane. He did not let Bauer, batters reach first base via walk. Um, Plutko has nice wipeout stuff. So even one through six, if you want to extend it that far. But, yeah, I, I mean, this is the cream of the crop within baseball. This is one of the best rotations in baseball. But, guys, the thing that I talked about on, on some of the podcasts that I did with um, Indians Baseball Insider, where I write for, is – while the Indians have such a good rotation and you guys being Boston guys might be able to give me a different perspective on this. I feel like Boston, the Yankees and Astros have closed that gap just a little bit within the Indians. And if the Indians stronghold is that starting rotation and the other three teams are closing the gap on that while the Indians aren't necessarily making big leaps to improve their outfield or their bullpen. Whereas the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Astros have better bullpens and outfields than the Indians do. If I'm an Indians fan, I'm a little concerned by that. What do you guys think about that? I, I think the Indi- I think the Yankees, and this is going to sound completely biased coming out of my Red Sox mouth, I think that people are kind of overblowing the Yankees' rotation a little bit. Uh, Severino you know, tends to fade towards the end of the second half. 
Uh, you you had a guy like James Paxton, who I think is phenomenal, phenomenal. But the Sox catching up to the Indians, which they can't, in my opinion, depends on Eduardo Rodriguez, because I think that when we look at it, this is gonna sound like a hot take to every single Red Sox fan that listened to it. I hate to break it to people. Corey Kluber is better than Chris Sale. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Sale's <laughs> numbers against the AL Central, it's absolutely atrocious. They blow him up because they've seen him so many times. Let's, I mean, we go to the second part. I love David Price to death, and I'm David Price's biggest defender. There is not a notch in these top five in the top five of this rotation where we can, you know, go across the board that the Red Sox are better than the Indians at. But I'll say this. When it comes to postseason, the Red Sox rotation has outperformed the Indians rotation. Yeah, which isn't saying much between the two of them. Yeah, well, when the Red Sox have a World Series ring, it matters. I'm, I'm just I'm speaking out of a little bit of salt here and trying to be as honest as I can. You know, as great as the Indians have been the last couple of years, the last two postseasons have been absolute failures, which make the entire season a failure. 2016, they weren't supposed to be there. 2017, they get the best record in the American League. They had the, the winning streak. They had everything going for them. And then they completely crapped the bed against the Yankees in five. Last year, they were com- completely, completely, totally, a thousand percent outmatched, outclassed, outplayed everything by the Houston Astros. You know, Francisco Lindor swung the best bat, and that's not saying much. And Mike Clevenger pitched a game three that is almost negligible just because games one and two were so terrible for the Indians as a whole. So, and I'm sorry to cut you off in a, in a little sense here, but when it comes down to the Indians, literally show up in October. That's what the, that's what they have to do at this point. You know, they have the roster to get there. They have the pitching to get there, the starting pitching at least. Um, they have yeah, they have those two superstars that are top five MVP candidates, perennial. There's no excuse as to why the Indians shouldn't be contending for a World Series other than the fact that they might have a depth question, which they do. Or they just don't perform, which they have not over the past two seasons. But when you look at Corey Kluber, when you look at Trevor Bauer and Carlos Carrasco and what they did last year, what Kluber did in Game 7 of 2016, and then what they did in 2017, they have not showed up in the postseason either. If your starting pitching is allegedly your best piece and they don't show up in the postseason, you're going to lose, and that's what's happened. Two more arms before we go on. i got to ask you about Tristan McKenzie, the number one prospect in the Indians organization, what can we expect? And how would you break down Tristan McKenzie to just an outsider asking about him? I mean, McKenzie is every bit, he's listed 6'5". I might put him at 6'8". He's a tall dude. And you guys have watched Chris Sale. You know what happens when tall dudes take the mound with his stature? It's hard to see the ball. It's hard to hit the ball. It's hard to catch the ball, uh, you know, coming off of his hands and, you're standing in the batter's box. You know, your eye gets a little mixed up. Tristan McKenzie has a good fastball, a good curveball, a nice changeup. He has good control on all of his pitches. He mows batters down with strikeouts. Um, I believe it was 2017. He, he was the minor league leader in strikeouts. And then he's had some injury issues last year. Um, but he, he's been nothing but great in the Indian system and, one of the top right-handed pitching prospects in all of baseball. Um, I mean, he throws a tight, tight pitch. And when you have a guy that's that tall and has that amount of reach, 
and he just throws in a such a small window, it's hard to hit no matter what. He he was in double A last year. I don't know. I think he would start in double A again just because he missed part of last season. Um, he only started 16 games last year. I would expect him, if, if everything works out correctly, he'll start about 10 to 15 in Akron and AA, and then move up to AAA. He's only 21, so they can take some time with him. And the ETA says this year, so I'm curious to see if they – that's what MLB Pipeline says at least. Um, if they stick to that kind of ETA or if it's actually 2020 – but man, he just, you know, he doesn't throw fire at you. He throws low 90s, but man, his command is just up there. He knows where to put the ball and he knows how to put it where he needs to. Uh, so um, going into the next, uh, you know, topic is a topic that the Red Sox, uh, you know, are kind of, that's a big question going into the season. Um, who is your ideal uh, seven, eight, nine inning pitchers for the Indians this season, going into the season? Well, if you're looking at just if you you thinking three pitchers in the back end because handed Simber could go multiple innings. So yeah, just three pitchers in that seven eight nine. Um, it, it well, it kind of depends on the scenario because they're going to use Tyler Olson as a supplemental lefty. They're going to use Oliver Perez, who was very solid last year at the age of 37. By the way, <laughs> thinking about that, they're going to use Oliver Perez as a left hand specialist mixed in with Tyler Olson. So it kind of depends on the situation when you get to that later stage in the game. But I think Brad Hand's going to be your closer. Adam Simber's going to be your setup man. You know, if you're thinking of a prototypical scenario. Um, and then it's kind of a toss-up. John Edwards, Nick Goody, Dan Otero, maybe Neil Ramirez. If I had, a, if you, you know, held a gun to my head and said which one of those guys, I would say it's John Edwards right now. But I really like having Hand as a closer. I don't think keeping Andrew Miller would have done them a lot of good. He really hasn't been there much anyway. Losing Cody Allen stinks a little bit, but, you know, his production kind of deteriorated, deteriorated last year um, after a really good 2016 and then just a good 2017. So, um, yeah, Hand Simber and then probably Edwards, I would say. We're going to discuss Brad Hand. You know, again, it's another one of those retrospect things. What was the reaction when Mejia was traded for Hand, and how does it look now? Because Brad Hand is one of the best closers in baseball, and you gave up a catching prospect, which you're now kind of lacking at this point. So what does that trade look at when we look back on it? Well, we talked a little bit about earlier about Noah Naylor, Bo Naylor, and if the Indians feel as good about Bo Naylor as they do, they're hoping that it can be Perez and Haas and Ploiecki. Ploiecki still is relatively young to kind of bridge that gap between now, a.k.a. what was Jan Gomes, and then Bo Naylor. They drafted Logan Ice in the second round a few years ago, and he hasn't panned out. He's been injury prone, been stuck largely in high A, and just got to double A ball last year after being drafted quite a few years ago. The trade in itself, I know given up... Mejia wasn't great, but there were quite a few issues with Francisco Mejia to begin with. Number one, the Indians wanted him to try to play third base. That was a st- that was a big story last year when he was with the Indian system going into the Arizona Fall League. They wanted him to try third base, and quite quite simply, he refused. He didn't want to move out of the catcher's spot. Um, so the Indians had an issue there. Number two was kind of the rise of Eric Haas throughout the minor leagues. Uh, the minor league system who, as I mentioned, caught two no hitters last year has established himself as a guy that can call a baseball game has shown some power and some pop and can hit. Um, 
But then you look at the other side. When you get a guy like Brad Hand and you get a guy like Adam Simber with Cody Allen and Andrew Miller, this is when they were still both in Cleveland when this trade happened. When Cody Allen and Andrew Miller both have expiring contracts at the same time. Now, granted, given what they were both paid, the Indians could have re-signed them for that kind of value. The Indians could have re-signed them. They didn't. They chose to move on because they had Hand and Simber. Now, at the time, when you go get a guy like Brad Hand, look at his contract. Beautiful. Compared to some of these relievers that are getting big money, Brad Hand's on a three-year, $19.75 million contract for the next three years, 2019, 2020, 2021. And by the way, that's his age 31 season when he's going to be a free agent. So they got a guy who is all-star caliber in his prime, along with a guy like Adam Simber, who has, if you've ever seen his release, it looks weird. If you've ever seen him pitch, yeah, it looks weird. But guess what? They have him under control this year for $575,000. And then he's arbitration eligible through 2023. So they have him for they have him for four more years, essentially five more years. And then they got Brad Hand for three more. And all you had to give up was your top prospect who you weren't so high on anymore anyway. So you filled in the impending departure of Cody Allen and Andrew Miller. You got rid of the guy who wasn't too thrilled about the the organization philosophy, which was you got to be able to play multiple positions just in case. Mejia didn't want to move away from catcher. He wanted to catch, period. Padres said, we'll gladly take that, and that's a scary farm system in itself. But now the Indians have, for at least the next three seasons plus, Brad Hand and Adam Simber, in the back hand of the in the back of the end of that bullpen, I'm okay with it. Given how Hand is all star caliber and realistically could be for those next three years too. What are the expectations for the Indians in 2019? You're obviously hoping that you win the Central, which it shouldn't be that big of a problem unless the Twins go on an absolute just spectacular run, uh, and maybe the White Sox age up. You know, maybe meet expectations two years earlier than they're supposed to, especially with the whiff of an off season that they've had. So is this a 91 win plus team? This is obviously a playoff team, you know, barring injury. What can we expect from the Indians in 2019 as a whole? It should be a 91 plus team. Theoretically, it is a 91 plus team. I don't think it's going to be less than a 90 win team, but I could see why people are thinking that because they didn't really do much to address the outfield. They didn't do much to address the bullpen. Lindor's hurt for the first, you know, for a couple months right now. Um, there's some uncertainties, you know, with, with the health and Bradley Zimmer and Leonis Martin and how effective they're going to be. I said this on the podcast that I do with uh, my the site that I write for, Indians Baseball Insider, and it's that I'm a little bit less excited about this year than I probably was for the past two seasons, given quite a few things that I've already talked about with you guys, and that's that the Indians didn't do in my opinion, much to close that gap between them and then Houston, Boston, New York. I think are the top three in that top tier, and then it's the Indians. I don't think the Indians did much to close that gap. Number two, 
We saw the evidence the last two years of what the Yankees did to the Indians in the postseason and what the Astros did to the Indians in the postseason. I remember watching the World Series and thinking, wow, the Red Sox and the Dodgers were playing completely different baseball than the Indians were. And that's true. I mean, they were just playing at a completely different level. How confident am I in that the Indians get back to the World Series, given everything, given the fact that I think that Boston, Houston, and the Yankees are still pretty much better than them, and the Indians didn't do too much to close that gap? Yeah, my World Series expectations are a little tempered. But I do expect them to win the Central. I do expect them to get to the postseason. What I hope doesn't happen is a repeat of last year. And I have a fear. It's a legitimate fear. Not like I think this is going to happen, but it's a fear that the same thing that happened to the Indians last postseason could happen this postseason. And on the flip side, the same thing that happened in 2016, where they weren't supposed to go there and they were the underdogs all along, happens again, and somehow they make that run to the World Series. I don't know what's going to happen once October rolls around, but I think it's a team that should be in it, that should have a chance to play the likes of Houston or the Yankees or Boston, whoever doesn't win the East. Um, and then whatever happens, happens. I mean, that's it's October. Anything can happen. That's, that's genuinely, that's a genuine thought. I'm trying to be as part journalistic and part, like, inspired as I can, but that's how it's felt the past couple seasons. And that's kind of why my expectations are tempered just a little bit for this Indians club this season. All right. So my last question for you. Um, so if there's one player to watch for, for a breakout season on the Indians, who do you have? Well, it's not going to be Lindor Ramirez because they've already broken out. Um, if there's anyone I think this could be Mike Clevenger's coming out party. And not just as a guy that has a bunch of strikeouts and good strikeout numbers, but it's a number four starter. Just just his numbers from last season right here. 13 and 8, 302 ERA, 32 starts. He put a full season in. He hit 200 innings on the nose, 207 strikeouts and a 116 whip. Those numbers are good enough to be a two starter anywhere else. I would think, at least. Maybe not an ace, but I think he's a two-starter anywhere else. For sure. And given that the Indians have a Cy Young Award winner in Kluber and a Cy Young Award contender in Bauer and a guy that's really darn good in Carlos Carrasco, Mike Clevenger kind of gets shuffled around a little bit. Last year might have been a career year for him. And in 2017, by the way, he went 12-6. and six with a 3.11 ERA. So he did better than he did, but it was only a slight improvement in 2018. He had an improvement, but it was only slight. But still the innings were way up. Um he he walked le- he walked less guys, certainly struck out more guys. Um I I think that this year really can put Mike Clevenger on the map as far as a legitimate starting pitcher that gets looks in that gets a lot of respect is concerned. Tell everybody where you're coming from and what do you write for? Yeah, so I'm from Northeast Ohio, a small town called Brookfield, which is right outside of Youngstown. Um, I write for Indians Baseball Insider, which is the Cleveland Indians section of 24-7 Sports. If you think you've heard of 24-7 Sports, it's because they're really big on college football and college basketball, and particularly in the recruiting range. Um, they have composite rankings and 
all of that for college sports. But yeah, there is baseball on there too. And I write for the site that covers the Indians. I've covered the minor league system for the last, what, five? This will be my fifth season covering the Indians minor league system. I've covered the Indians, the big league team. I've been to every minor league affiliate. So what I do a lot is a lot of prospect breakdown. I co-host the Farm Report podcast with my editor-in-chief, Jake Dungan. Uh, we do that weekly during the season. I help out with the Smoke Signals podcast, which both can be found on iTunes. Um, I help out. We talk about the Cleveland Indians, obviously, and the Big League Club and what goes on in their week. And then I write for a couple other sites. I, uh, I, I freelance for The Vindicator in Youngstown, which is a newspaper. Um, I write for Troy News is an Absolute Magician, which is the Syracuse University site. Go Orange on SB Nation. Syracuse grad, class of 2018. Proud of that. And, um, yeah, so please follow me on Twitter, at CDCrisan, C-D-C-R-I-S-A-N. I'd really appreciate it. I'm always on there talking about baseball, sports, food, video games, no politics, usually. So um, thanks for having me, guys.